0: Hi everyone, welcome to season two of Belongings. I'm so grateful and happy that you're joining us for another season of conversations with inspiring creative people as we discuss home, belonging, identity, and more. I've learned so much from our guests this season and I hope you will also find these conversations as rich and meaningful as I did. Thank you again for supporting the podcast, for being here with us, and for supporting Kadam Foundation. I really appreciate you being here and I really hope you enjoy this season. Welcome again to Belongings. Hi everyone. I'm so excited today to share the conversation I had with Amar Afandam, my friend, the rapper, the poet, the spoken word artist, genius all around who is the creator of the show, Little Syria, which we'll talk about a lot. And he is just somebody who is so inspiring with his background, with his knowledge and everything that he wants to share. I'm always inspired by everything that he creates and the way that he builds community around his art and what he calls the deliciousness of Syrian culture. I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Hi, Amar. Welcome to Belongings.
1: Hi, Lena. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited to talk to you today. Obviously, you know, a continuing conversation that we've had for many, many years. And I'm excited to share this conversation with our audience. Amar is a dear, dear friend of mine and a dear friend of Karam Foundation.
1: And I am just so in awe of what you've been able to do over the last more than a decade uh, with Karam and for our community. So thank you, Lena, again for having me.
0: Well, thank you for being here. I wanted to start by sharing a short bio of Ahmad Afandim for any of you who don't know him, and everybody should know him, but uh, his background is rich and he's done a lot. So I will share his bio. Ahmad Afendim is a Syrian-American rapper and spoken word artist. Known for his unique blend of hip-hop and Arabic poetry, he's been featured on prominent world news outlets like Al Jazeera, BBC, PBS, and the LA Times. He's lectured at a number of prestigious academic institutions like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Northwestern, UT Austin, and others. He's collaborated with major museums and cultural organizations and helped raise millions of dollars for various humanitarian relief groups like Islamic Relief, the Syrian American Medical Society, and of course, Karam Foundation. Afendim is a Kennedy Center Citizen Artist Fellow, an Arab America Foundation 40 Under 40 Award recipient, and a member of both the Pillars Fund Cohort for Muslim Narrative Change and the Race Forward Butterfly Lab Cohort for Immigrant Narrative Strategy. He currently resides in the great state of New York with his wife and two little children while daydreaming about the jasmine tree-lined streets of Damascus. And one of my personal favorite bios of you is one you've given yourself is born in the KSA, raised in the USA and constantly harassed by the TSA.
1: (laughs) Thankfully that last part hasn't happened as much recently. And I don't want to, you know, rock the boat, but that was definitely written early on in the career post 9 11 when, when that happened a lot. Yeah, what yeah. can I say?
0: <laughs> it's very, very catchy. And you're the wordsmith be- and like multi, multilingual wordsmith, which we'll get into. But yeah, I mean, even that point saying that this is a post 9 11 kind of phrase that you used is just a, a testament to your work being really a historical record of what mm. has happened in the past couple of decades. And then with your work, current work, even beyond that in the past. Mm. So that's something I'm very interested in.
1: I never intended for it to be the case. It's really fascinating how that just happens when you stick to something long enough and are consistent. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a privilege to have lived this long, to have experienced as much as I have and to have been creating and putting, you know, work out that is a reflection of, of all of those changes and transitions in life. And though I'm not the most prolific artist, and I think, you know, everybody knows that <laughs> who really knows me. It takes me a while to put out music, but I think it's the touring, it's the performing, it's knowing that whenever you come and see me at a show, I'm probably doing something new, trying something new out. Yeah. And it's just a sense of community that grows from that sort of consistency, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think now, like I just had this really profound experience just a couple of nights ago here in New York City where... You know, as you said, I've been doing this for a couple of decades. I'm one of the older ones in the, in the Arab art scene now in America. Not making
0: you feel old. I'm definitely <laughs> no, in the same fine. boat. <laughs> it's a
1: beautiful thing, actually, like to, to see it. Like I, you know, I performed with three phenomenal Arab American, North African, East African artists, Feluka and Nadina Ruby, who are two up and coming singers and rappers. And and then myself and then Safe, who's a good friend who I've known from way back when as well, a fellow Amma in the game. But we see like how the community has grown exponentially and how the young, young people who we felt like so few and far between at the beginning, like experimenting with art and with music. There are so many of us now that are doing so many different things, even tangentially related to the creative world that are part of this community now. And it's grown. It's a beautiful thing to see. And it's definitely intergenerational, which I think makes me really proud, you
0: know? Yeah, absolutely. In a weird way, I mean, Kerem Foundation itself, I don't think people know this. I mean, we turned 16 this year, which Uh is kind of crazy. But, you know, when we started, I definitely felt that this was starting from the point of view of being in the post 9-11 world, Uh in the early, early Obama world, you know, even before he was president. And that, you know, hope and change was Uh our reality, which sadly was not a reality at all. But there was that moment of optimism in that time that things would shift to the better. Mm -hmm. And to know that, you know, the creation of Kerem, which was very much, you know, a US based operation of, you know, redefining generosity, and it was coming from, you know, that sense of community here in the Arab American community here in Chicago and beyond. To One have of the
1: most generous communities in the country. Yeah. And I have yeah. the honor of coming to Chicago many times. Yeah. And I can attest to that. Sorry, somebody. Yeah.
0: yeah, no, it's just that, that idea of like where we are now and what we do and how different, you know, that nobody would have expected that this is going to be the world that mm-hmm. we're living in and, the, mm-hmm. and that responsibility that we have, whether it's us or you and your music and you and your work, it's almost like everything flipped completely.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I was thinking about that hope As it's, I mean, resilience is really the word and adaptability, you know? And I think that's what our young people need to see from us more than anything in order to have hope. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Uh, And I think it was a sense of despair that we often felt from many of our parents that overshadowed the fact that they were still resilient in these really crazy times, you know, that they went through. Everything seems more. Extreme now because we just are so more connected and the numbers are bigger because there's just more people on earth. But the feelings and the sentiments and the fears and the anxieties are all, we're all there before, I believe, you know, they're heightened now and our awareness of them is heightened. But it still required a sense of resilience and fortitude that I think leaving Hama, in the case of my father, for example, you know, or leaving Palestine, how so many uh, of our friends from the Palestinian community, Iraqis, Yemenis, I mean, so many people from our part of the world who've experienced different kinds of loss and trauma and war and famine, et cetera. We have just like, and this is just the 20th century. Of course, if you look back in the text, there's so many examples dating back to biblical times of how you are resilient in these difficult moments in life and how you push on, you know, to the most beautiful, I think like prophetic quote of even if it is the, the end of days and you're planting a tree, you should keep planting that seed. Don't stop doing what you're doing. Just keep pushing, keep going, keep looking to the future. And so I see that in the Karam story. Like, you know, you had to totally shift and alter course and all of a sudden found a new meaning, I imagine, in what you're doing and what you continue to do now with another alteration because of the earthquakes and the the refugee crisis and what's happening to refugees in Turkey and other places. I think that's what's really fascinating about being Syrian nowadays, too. It's just expanded, like, the definition of that, Syrian-slash- so many things now you couldn't have ever imagined before. Exactly. German, Australian, New Zealand, or South Africa, like anywhere you go, Sudanese, like there are Syrian contributions to those communities now. And I think the future holds a lot of beauty because of that. So i am I try to be optimistic in that sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, totally. This is kind of where the seeds of even this podcast started, the idea of belonging and how the word belonging really has been shifting for us as Syrians and for so many people that are facing mass displacement for various reasons. And I think this is going to continue, sadly, uh, for the future in Mm. many different ways. So I wanted to ask you, how do you define belonging? What do you think about that word? What does it mean to you? Wow. Wow.
1: I mean, it's definitely evolved over the years. And I think if you just listen to the arc of my music, you'll probably see that evolution pretty clearly. To be raised in a Syrian home that was already, like not displaced, but just had already shifted. I was born in Saudi versus my eldest sister who was born in Sham. So even in that, we have a different sense of belonging to Syria in one family. And then from there to leave again and to come to the U.S. at the age of four and start to grow up here and develop an identity here as an Arab American changes and alters the sense of belonging. And then in going to the school that I went to, you know, this Arab, you know, and American sort of very transient environment that was bilingual and international shifted my understanding of belonging because it's like I'm a part of this bigger Muslim world, quote unquote, you know, which is really the whole world. But then even in that school, you could see. Between the nepotism that's rife in the Arab world and the favoritism and that you don't necessarily always belong, you know, and then to have proximity to Palestinian family members, to again, Iraqi friends and and Sudanese friends and Yemeni friends, Lebanese, like people who are familiar with displacement and with have very difficult relationships to their quote unquote homeland or are here and are being stereotypes or are are dealing with xenophobia, you know, again, the definition begins to change. You know, where do you belong? Where do you feel like you belong? So over time, I think for me, I found that through my art and through music and the different communities that my art and my music has brought me to, or I've come out of, you know, whether it's the hip hop community, uh, you know, or the architecture community, Mm -hmm. the general music community, if you will, and then now just kind of seeing the diaspora grow, I feel like that's the sense of belonging that I'm most intrigued by, I feel most comfortable in. And it's that funny feeling, like it's the diaspora thing that like, you know, you, you're never fully from here, you're never fully from there. And yeah. in that and in that quest in life that Edward Said put so eloquently it's just with so many dissonances in my life, I've learned to be not quite right and out of place. And then boom, there, he like nailed it. That's the, that's the sense of belonging that you have ironically. And when I meet other people who have that same tension uh, or attuned to it, at least then, then I feel like I belong because I know my art means more to them. I know my stories and my experiences resonate a little deeper and they don't have to be Syrian American to have that feeling. Uh, And I think that's, what's really special. And, I, I mean, we're talking about this on a really momentous day for hip hop. I'm not sure when this podcast will be released, but we're talking about like the 50th anniversary of hip hop mm-hmm. culture, literally miles away from where I am. And I plan to take my son Gibran to a park in the Bronx where they're having a universal hip hop museum mm-hmm. having a celebration of this 50th anniversary of hip hop. When DJ Herc came to the park, found the, the loop in between the two records And created a a loop for B-boys and B-girls and dancers to dance to, you know, thus spawning what we now know as this huge art form called hip-hop that has touched every corner of the globe, including Syrian refugee camps, you know? Yeah. And in this culture that was born out of being, you know, first and foremost, out of the Black struggle in America and out of the urban experience in America, the most forgotten communities, like the just... The odds were completely stacked against them, and yet they existed, they persisted. It's that adaptability and that resilience that I was you know talking about earlier that manifested in the most beautiful artistic expression of our time and has become this major powerhouse you know of around the world, cultural powerhouse and economic powerhouse. and the founders of it didn't get to necessarily reap the benefits of that and that's the that's world really, that's the world yeah. we live in, you know. Yeah, that's, That's
0: I mean, that's really powerful. I mean, you're coming from multiple lineages, you know, when you think about. All of the things you just mentioned, Mm. as well as your architecture background, as well that I would like to ask you about later. And that's really powerful to talk about, you know, how that struggle of hip hop even permeates when other cultures, like you've picked it up and taken Uh it and make it, made it your own. And it's Uh this in between the Syrian American, the Arab American, Uh Muslim American, between all of these and finding that sense of belonging within that new community that you're building.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I owe everything to the founders of hip hop. I owe everything to the the poets, the Arab poets who laid the foundation for what I do, how I could even perceive my life. You know, I think about how so many of us at a certain point in time, the only Syrians who would come here were ones who were highly educated, who had the opportunity to come and work at hospitals or like, you know, big clinics or, and you know, engineering firms or what have you. And with all the all the privilege that comes with that, it can be very limiting in terms of how you can actually be allowed to see yourself living your life and what is acceptable in this community. And so I, you know, I had to push back against a lot of those feelings of doubt and things that were just ingrained in me as a Syrian growing up in the United States in a particular time. And I, you know, I... I've said it before, like if my father hadn't passed away when I was so young, I don't know if I would be doing what I do. It has a lot to do with the things I choose to to rap about, but also just the simple fact that I embarked on this course and this career in my life. Who knows what would have been if Baba was still around? And I don't necessarily mean like he would have disapproved. I just don't know if the cards would have landed the way they have, you know? And so now I think about the fact that there are It's not the same thing, but there are, you know, millions of Syrians now who are entering these other spaces, these other countries, these other regions who don't necessarily have this longstanding Syrian-American medical community or for the most part, middle to upper middle class community to like lean on for professional support, guidance, understanding, and they're making it and they're hustling and they're doing what immigrants from so many different places around the world always did. Not that there isn't hustling and real hard work involved in being a doctor, of course, don't get me wrong, but the idea that like it's a different path and it's not a guarantee. And in those sorts of struggles, especially the entrepreneurial ones, you see some really amazing things happen. And like, and people who who follow me online know, like, I love food. I love Syrian food. I'm as much an ambassador of Syrian food as I am of Syrian poetry. And that's like one vantage point where you can see what Syrian presence in other countries can be, has been. And it's you just one one it. entry point, you know. We push it, we always push it first, but it's a yeah. big one. It's important. Like we can joke about it, but it's real. I mean, yeah. if you can make somebody's belly happy, you've got the key to their heart.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean and but you you're pushing change, against yeah. those cultural norms against, you know, all the way through. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess that was one of my questions coming up later, but we can talk about it now. Is that where Mm. your name came from? Can you explain your name, Offendem, to the (laughs) audience who might not know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, you know, my great-grandfather, my mom's uh, grandfather, Omar, I am his namesake. He uh, ultimately was where I got, you know, my name from in a sense. But I remember my mom when I was little, sort of like... uh, you know, if I'd act up, you know, you know who, who do you think you are? And Afendi is a title of nobility. It's related to the Ottoman sort of military and court system. And it's like a kind of a similar uh, framing as sir or lord, you know. That's a title that's earned. And it's actually the root word, the etymology of it is authentis, so the Greek word authentis, you know, which I think is very cool if you think about what authentic means to art and expression. And then I chose to spell it with a O because I knew that it sounded like offend them. And whether you're an Arab male post 9-11 or you're a rapper on stage, you know, people get the sense that you're going to offend them. And so the idea that this name could embody just that total flip of meaning from one side of the world to the other. And the fact that my career could be a reflection of that if I did it right was kind of where that came from. Omar um, is amazing. my name though. Omar yes. is my name. And I have a, th- I have a, I have a theory about names that start with the letter O. Yeah. <laughs> that they put a smile on people's faces like Omar and Oscar and Oliver. I feel like the double O also was kind of honoring that too. And the lyrics. It's lyricism, a marketing technique. It's a marketing <laughs> technique. It's the two eyes. It's the Ain, the Ain that is Omar. It's in my logo, yeah. you know, and it's the letter that is most akin. So I, And I, I think about that, the symbology of it. Like I worked on the logo, a revamp of my logo recently was with Hussain al-Azat, a phenomenal graphic designer and calligrapher based in Amman of Syrian origin. He just did the currency, the like the new Jordanian banknotes, which is like pretty amazing. But we were talking about how like the early alphabet system of Ugarit of what some consider the very first or could be all the letters were in many ways like symbols. So like the kaf is actually looked like a kaf, you know, and like mm-hmm. you can see it and the Ain looks like the ayn and how we have this deep reverence for the eye, the evil eye, the symbolism of it, what it means to us and our people. It's transcendent. It's not just one religious group. It's not just one even like meaning. All of that I found really, really deep, really powerful, especially as we just consider where we are now as a society in terms of how we all have cameras and eyes on us all the time, you know, who's watching who.
0: I love that connection with authentic too. I didn't know the offendi and authenticity, yeah. like the word, the word. And, and
1: authentic, same root word. I am true to form. That's
0: wonderful. <laughs> I think I
1: put that in a, I put that in a wrap.
0: Yeah. And there is um, like a double O to talk about marketing and startups you know google mm-hmm. all of these companies mm-hmm. Think like goop the double o is symbolic of you know getting it really close oh i love that
1: yeah and then there's the ain in it and the, yeah. Aein, the actual letter ain and the actual meme the actual Ra. Uh, you know like so i hats off to hussein for really yeah. synthesizing he's incredible and
0: we need to bring him on this podcast
1: you should <laughs> he's, absolutely. he's wonderful he's also got this really amazing uh initiative to document like Arabic typography around mm-hmm. the region and bring it back. So taking pictures of storefronts and of uh, signs and things that were all handwritten, hand painted yeah. years ago. He's going to be able to be bringing back with like prints that people can buy now and stuff. Yeah, and stuff. yeah. It's, it's actually so cool. we used
0: one of his. He gifted us uh, one of his historic maps of Syria, which we used ah. in our first logo of, of belongings. Yeah. And we use that inside of the letters ah. because he collects vintage maps.
1: Mm-hmm. Another yeah. thing he does. Yeah. And I,
0: lo- and I love maps. And we comp- love maps. <laughs> yeah,
1: Syrians yes. love maps. It's funny. We, we so, love seeing where we can go next.
0: <laughs> so this comp- brings me to the belongings exercise, which is drawing your map of home.
1: Ooh. And
0: this is what we ask every guest. You know, we'll take a few minutes and you can draw home and whatever time you'd like. It could be the past, present, future. It could be a floor plan. Hmm. It could be a symbol. It could be anything you want. Okay.
1: It's interesting. Depending on the day, depending on the circumstance, of course, my definition of certain things can change and shift. But certainly, of something like home, that's been an ever-evolving notion of shift and change and growth and pain and loss and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I've been thinking about a lot now is the idea that it's like this intergenerational quest. It's just in Hawaii. Uh, Hawaii is how it's. Technically pronounced by the indigenous peoples, and I was hearing about like the origin story because it 's definitely a Polynesian island, though for a long time uh, Europeans tried to claim otherwise in the sense that the people on the island are Polynesian, and that Europeans had initially tried to say no, they just stumbled there from Mexico or something, but in that like several decades ago, there were really great advances uh, by the Hawaiian Various Hawaiian activists and liberation movements to bring the language back and make sure that the government recognized the importance of this language that was almost wiped out, you know, by the colonizers. And then in the stories of the migration from Tahiti, which is where the Hawaiian people had first come from, there were stories of how like one generation after the other of Tahitian people would get on boats and they would see birds flying in a particular direction. So they knew something was there. They just didn't know what and they were following and it took multiple generations to actually finally get there. And then realizing that the, the water routes actually are directly connected. And in fact, they say that the ancestors used to put like fruit and food on these ships that they would build and have nobody on them and just sh- send them up to Hawaii yeah. through the water channels, you know, and then they had this really beautiful. Movement. I think it was in the 70s, and if I'm mistaking any of this, I apologize. It was just kind of told to me quickly. But in order to for Hawaiian activists to prove that there were these connections, you know, between the Polynesian islands, they wanted to build a boat in the same traditional methods that they were built Mm -hmm. back then, and sail this boat down to Tahiti and filmed the whole documentary around it. And ultimately, they succeeded. And I just think how powerful that must have been to find comu- your roots for the community to prove, you know, yeah. like you know your roots, but you're being yeah. told that they're not your mm-hmm. roots. And you're like, no, this whole thing that you're saying about this being a state. No, this is the Hawaiian kingdom, you know, uh, first and foremost. And these are islands that have been connected culturally, linguistically to the, you know, the Polynesian story for centuries. Don't try to change that. And it's really It puts things in perspective as a tourist, too, because you're like, what the hell am I doing here? You know, and I've gone a couple of times and I really wrestle with it. It's like I try to be as respectful as I can. I try to avoid like the the really crazy tourist traps. But at the end of the day, you are still contributing to this bigger issue. And how deep are we willing to go with that thought as a society? Like even where I live now, same thing, same story. And I know back in Shem right now, our home is occupied by a government squatter and he's probably not leaving anytime soon. So, so, you know, it's this crazy thing that human beings are doing to each other out of a result of not feeling like they belong, you know, in many, many, many cases or wanting to force someone else to believe they don't belong. I think that's really wild, but um, I need to get back to this drawing.
0: <laughs> I'm always very intrigued. I think this comes from my own background in architecture by mm. everybody who studied architecture and is not an architect mm. by profession. And I honestly almost wanted to create a podcast just talking to people who studied (laughs) architecture and aren't architects. Um,
1: Uh, That's funny.
0: And I love how like in
1: there's like so many of them, by
0: the way, there's so many. I know. In the media, like how many how many people in the movies, like how many architects are there in the movies? Like it's such an over exposed profession because I, I think like there's this so much romanticism around it. And George Costanza wanted to be an architect or pretended right? to be an architect. Yeah. And then you have all these architects not doing architecture. Exactly. Um, I mean, so while you're drawing your map and I know that you're, you'll be fine doing a floor plan or whatever you decide to make, I wanted to ask <laughs> you about that. Like, how does that background inform your work?
1: I think the, the way that you're taught to think about the world as an architect is definitely a huge one. Just in terms of making connections that the average person might not necessarily see, orienting yourself towards the sun or towards certain, you know, like geographical, I think, uh, regions, or even the idea that like you have to keep working at something, and it's not about the product, it's about the process that you know got you there, and all these sorts of like really important insights that the architectural schooling and career sort of like ingrained in me. Not to mention now, like just kind of moving more into this theatrical realm with the little Syria project and with just how I'd like to present my work you know as often as possible, moving forward, I think um yeah, the opportunity to kind of move yeah. in the in the vein of like set design and get really excited about you know world building in a real way like and creating the kind of home that I'd always wished to see that like perfectly balanced my Syrianness and my Americanness and everything in between and this. <laughs> I think is exciting, and I mm. also know like now that you know now that i'm a a homeowner a father <laughs> it's been helpful to know a few more things in that regard uh because yeah. it's like it comes expensive. in handy and it comes in handy when you know yeah. when you know at least what you need to get done or who you need to call to do something because yeah, it ain't easy, I think also the the way that I was able to go to sham during my architectural schooling and work at the historic renovation committee in the old city for a few summers was really special. Like I look back on it now, as like, ah, some of the most like, um, profound moments in my life in terms of just like understanding architecture in such a deep way, because you're from this most ancient of places. And how layers and layers of history stacked upon each other, literally in the foundation of what was once a temple to Jupiter and then a church and then a mosque and how literally there's neighborhoods in Sham, if they have like a a plumbing problem, they're afraid to dig up because they don't want it to become a UNESCO World Heritage Site and not be allowed to fix the plumbing issue (laughs) because they'll find some column from like 5,000 years ago. So that's the kind of stuff that I, I don't think I took it for granted because I didn't, like I knew how lucky we were to go to sham and connect yeah. with family. I knew how special it was. I really did. So I, I don't think I necessarily took anything for granted. It's just that you could never feel like you spent enough time
0: Exactly. when
1: it's taken away from you. So that's, I think, part of the stuff that I struggle with. But.
0: Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the old city of Aleppo when I was studying architecture. And we did all these surveys and mappings of the old city when there was a whole renovation project of the old city of Aleppo. And it's devastating to think of how much of that is just gone mm. for no reason, mm-hmm. no good reason, mm-hmm. um, And all of that work that goes into supposedly renovating and rehabilitation and all these projects.
1: I mean, I think about that a lot in terms of how many times I would come to Chicago, we'd do a fundraiser, we'd build a hospital and the hospital would get bombed. And of course you're going to do it again, but it's just, it's at a certain point, it's like maddening. And I'm, I'm I'm so far removed from the actual tragedy of it and I'm losing my mind. So I can't even imagine what truly what that must feel like to see that over and over and over again, in terms of what that does to the generations who are trying to think about what's next for us and for our future and for our people. And, you know, right now I, when I want to see my mom, for example, I have to go to Cairo. She used to be in Shem and, you know, she ended up settling in Cairo. One of the Privileged refugees who got to pick up and go somewhere of more of a choice in, in that, you know. And the community in Cairo is generally better off than Jordan, than Lebanon, than Turkey. A, because they were mostly people who were able to go there and start a business or what have you. But then also just, I think, really, the Egyptian people and their being so welcoming. And their being this historic connection, this their being a, a mutual respect already has a lot to do with why Syrians are probably a little better off in Egypt than other places. Not to mention, I think like the way we, it's kind of what we were talking about in the beginning. Like you go to Cairo now and it's like Syrian restaurants, coffee shops, nut roasters, ice cream parlors and everything and perfume. Like we make life smell and taste delicious, you know,
2: (laughs) we're delicious people
1: (laughs) make the revolution irresistible. (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah and it's like it's something to be proud of it's a beautiful thing you know it's not the only thing we can do but wow we do that well and people appreciate that you know And it's like it's just the result of where we were for so long the crossroads of these three continents and so we have a little bit of something for everybody to appreciate you know i think i think also about how many of my friends left architecture for various reasons and are are using their sort of architectural training in fascinating ways, you know.
0: And music and architecture are so closely linked, too. There are so many people that have a background in architecture and music.
1: Absolutely. Architecture is frozen music, as the ancient Greeks used to say. And I think, you know, art in general, it's all connected. But I think with architecture and with music, what you're thinking about is like the shape of sound, even the way sounds come out of your body and the way your body is shaped and how you are an instrument and then how the things that you sit on and are near you are instruments and then how the room is an instrument and how all of us together working in unison can create a different layer of music and all that stuff. There's architectural elements to that kind of thinking, you know, even if they're not necessarily thinking of it as that, that's what it is. What I've been drawing here is just basically an attempt. I, when I was little, I remember being told that my father had a dream of building a home that was like in a U shape. So not a full on courtyard like, like we would have in Sham necessarily, a U shape around a pool and then overlooking a ranch where he could have herds of sheep, you know?
2: (laughs) Is that in uh, Syria?
1: No. So Baba left Hama and was never, you know, able to go back. And so this was actually in Houston, which is interesting. This is like another part of the syrian american story there's a big community in houston and i think what i found for myself in california i I guess baba found in texas you know the east coast feels decidedly unfamiliar to a syrian but then all of a sudden when you get to like the southwest you're like huh okay this is a it's a little bit more familiar yeah you know i think houston the connection was obviously he was living in saudi arabia working with saudis at the time there's connections between houston and you know, the oil industry and things like that. He was not in the oil industry per se, but if you're just working in Saudi, you're going to be somehow tangentially, yeah. you know? So Houston became a major touch point for him in his life. And to this day, there are friends of his who live there. You know, I'm a Bassem Barazi who he used to work with, who hold on to memories of my father in a, in a way that I can't ever, because they knew him so much more. But the idea that he wanted to retire there, that he wanted to own a piece of land and build a home In this U shape around a pool with olive trees and then me adding a little piano in here (laughs) and a a bigger kitchen than he might have cared to have is more of me. But, and I don't think I would want to live there, (laughs) but just the idea that this is something he never got to realize and that this is maybe my intergenerational quest. And maybe I'm not going to be the one to realize this. Maybe it's someone else. And I hope that wherever it is, it can be done with the type of care and grace that has to be employed to acknowledge this complicated sort of world we live in especially this country you know land rights and all of those things but that said i also think he'd love where we are now because we moved to a home in the new york area like a couple years ago and it's, uh, it's up in the uh, in the forest, <laughs> far away from the hustle and bustle of New York City, but close enough for me to get there to do the work I need to do. And it's surprising to people, especially when I'm in the city and I'm telling them where I live, like, what do you live up there for? You know, it's like, it's so far. I li- we have no traffic lights, no, no, uh, That's beautiful. No, uh, no street lights. Yeah. I just hear the birds and I. I'm on the same coast now that I was when I grew up. We grew up in D.C. Baba was buried there. And I I feel like his spirit around here, you know. But uh, also, again, this is not Syria. And, you know, this was also land that was stolen. And all of those things start to, as the years go by, like you think about that more and more, you know, especially as, an immigrant, especially as somebody who now can no longer go back to the place, you know, even if you told me go back to where you came from, <laughs> I can't, you yeah. know, so yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah exactly.
1: <laughs> You're stuck with me, you know? Yeah. I think I said it on one of my first, I was like with song destiny. Yeah.
0: It's hard living Which in the is, West. when I'm my the fa-
1: east got the best of me. Yeah.
0: That's one of my favorite songs. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's funny how something that you wrote in your twenties can be more profound than anything you could say in your forties sometimes. It's
0: not more profound, (laughs) but I just like love that song. I was listening to it this morning. Uh Um Yeah, and I I mean I love the map the idea of the map that it's really First of all, you're our first guest to draw your map while you're still answering other questions. So thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, But the way that you drew your map, yeah, please keep drawing because we're going to take a picture of this and we'd love to share it with everybody. But you can keep drawing. And the idea that the map is, uh, this floor plan of this house is based in your father's dreams and Mm. you're adding on and you don't know where you're placing it is just so beautiful and is attached to really all of your work as well. Thank you. I wanted to move to Little Syria because I want to make sure we talk about Little Syria. I I was able to see Little Syria. I was privileged to see it a couple months ago in Chicago, and it was spectacular.
1: That's right. We did it in Chicago. That's crazy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So it's a hip hop musical. Your collaborators are Ronnie Mali. And thanks, Joey. And it's a fascinating journey through time. You take on the role of the Hakawati, the storyteller, in uh, about a 100 years ago in New York City. And uh, I would like you to tell us about Little Syria as the place, the place where this is taking place. And if you could tell us a little bit about how the idea of the show came about. I know that you worked on it for many years before you put it into production last year and debuted it.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for so eloquently front-ending it. So... Little Syria, first of all, you know, for folks who don't know, it was a neighborhood on the lower west side of Manhattan between the late 1870s and about the 1940s. And it was essentially where Lebanese and Syrian and Palestinian and greater sort of Swana, Mina people would immigrate and settle. It was right off of the battery. So you literally kind of Ellis Island, boom, you get off and it's almost right there. So very, very close to where they first landed. And mainly between on the Lower West Side, between on Washington Street, between Rector and Albany. And for people who are familiar with the Lower West Side of Manhattan, that's like pretty much the financial district now and downtown. That the the the, the um, ground zero where the Twin Towers used to stand is just literally a few blocks away. Now you see the Freedom Tower up there, and there's only about two or three buildings that date back to that time. One of them is now in the historic registry. It was a church, uh, I believe, a Melkite church that um, was, I think, completed pretty much when the community had mostly left, you know, so it was kind of like too little too late. And then there's like another tenement or two uh, that are still there. But I was always fascinated by this community because I remember seeing poetry books like this one that I used to see on my mom's shelf growing up. This is Diwan Abimaldi. And in these books, I'd see that she would like take notes and write just underline interesting things. But And it would say that there was, you know, a bunch of us who used to live in, in New York, like a long time ago. And it was interesting. I just, it never really like clicked, you know, as a kid, I was more interested in just listening to rap music or, or even like Mizar Abani. It just felt closer. I could hear someone sing his song. Okay. Then I kind of know this poetry a little better. But as I got older, you know, I was more and more intrigued by this like Arab American origin story, essentially, you know, and, um, not to mention one that happened in New York City where, so much of the culture that I love, hip-hop culture, you know, was birthed from. Lo and behold, I'm speaking to you now, and it's like, again, 50th anniversary of hip-hop. It's also the 100th anniversary of Jibran uh, Khalil Jibran's publication of The Prophet, his seminal book that made him the third highest-selling poet in human history. And there's an exhibit of his drawings at the Drawing Center in Manhattan, where I just kind of performed a couple of weeks ago with, with some poets. There's this huge hip-hop celebrations happening all across the city. Between Jay-Z's words literally wrapped around the Brooklyn Library and a whole exhibit there where they recreated the studio that he recorded his albums in, which is amazing. Like down to the detail, the room is exactly like the room looked and you see him walk in and have goosebumps. Like, so talk about, you know, mapping and stuff. It's just to think about that. That's, that's what's happening now as this is all being discussed is really profound. But little Syria is basically like, My attempt at trying to, like you said, bridge the Hakawati tradition of Sham, the orator, the storyteller, the keeper of of story and of parable, often rhyming, addressing issues in the community, sitting on an elevated sort of platform in a chair, oftentimes with a tarbush and like orating, really. And so much of my performance style, as much as it is rap, is very much also influenced by the way Arab poets perform and recite poetry. And so this like kind of combination of the two using hip hop as a vehicle to kind of tell the story, but then also working with someone like Rani Ma'ali, who is an incredible multi-instrumentalist, Palestinian born and raised in Chicago. In the show, he plays Oud and piano, but in the music, he's also playing other instruments like pre-recorded. And so he's able to kind of create that that same bridge that I create uh, lyrically, between rap and arabic poetry he does musically between a very effortlessly kind of shredding over a beat you know like as if you were in a rock and roll band or or very gracefully and generously supporting me as i recite arabic poetry by doing what we call taqasim which is just you know kind of cuts on the road to kind of heighten each expression and so we're doing that live while also Our third member of our group thanks Joey, who is Syrian as well Syrian-American, born and raised in Brooklyn, whose grandfather was a legendary, legendary musician from Sham, Yusuf Kasseb, just passed away a couple of weeks ago at Lair who had recorded and performed music all across America. He moved from Sham, I think, in the 70s, so 70s and 80s, 90s, all across the United States and Central and South America, composing and performing music. And so his grandson now samples not only his grandfather's music, but music from the early Arab American community and makes beats out of them. Joey's a beat maker. So, you know, kind of the foundation of hip hop in many ways as well, you know, sampling and taking something old and breathing new life into it. And so I did a lot of research. I was also awarded a a residency at the University of Musical Society in Ann Arbor to bring them together. They had never met before, Joey and Ronnie. And this was back in 2019. And we worked on what became sort of like the, the meat and potatoes of the show in the span of like two weeks or a little bit less. And then a month after that, we performed it once at the Kennedy Center, just like a little 12-minute medley. And then, you know, the pandemic happened. <laughs> well,
0: that's <laughs> what, that's that. how Hamilton started, right? But just that's, a tiny little...
1: <laughs> that's exactly right. And it's funny you mention yeah. that because Hamilton Hamilton is something that when I'd mentioned My desire to do this project to people at the Kennedy Center when I was a a fellow there, they got me tickets to go see the show. And it was really inspiring to just see how, how an idea could evolve, uh, and grow and how talented human beings can be now, like rapping, singing, dancing, acting all at the same time. Unreal. And then, you know, telling American history in this way. It's not necessarily anything new. It's been done before, but Hamilton did it at a scale that was really unprecedented. And so, for me, that was really also helpful to see at the time and to start imagining what might be. I, knew my, I know what we do is different and I know this show feels very different than Hamilton. So I don't make too many comparisons, but it is helpful for people to put in, in that yeah. context sometimes. I think also that I have in this show found a way to bring all the things I love, all these crazy disparate, seemingly disconnected passions of mine, mm-hmm. you know, the architecture, the history, just like the nerdiness about little minute details of Syrian-American contribution to life, like the ice cream cone, you know? (laughs) I love Uh, that story. So many, so many things that like I can finally channel through this unique way. Again, the, the, the thing that I'm most proud of is just the intergenerational aspect of it. I know that there are people from every generation who can come and from many different communities and walks of life who can come and experience it and feel something special. And so what I wanted to say was, Hamilton started at the public theater and we just sold out four shows at the public theater a couple of weekends ago. Yeah. So you never know.
0: Inshallah. Inshallah yeah. <laughs> it should go far and wide. And that's what I hope for <laughs> the show. I mean, one of the things you know, for me, when I was watching it, it was really powerful. When we think about this from the point of view of the birth of a community in a very hostile place mm-hmm. and continues to be hostile to more generally to outsiders and the idea of welcoming and how that happens the Mm -hmm. way that you used the headlines and the news from the Mm. time, the media from the time, Mm -hmm. and how, and you've mentioned this in interviews and how that could just be lifted off of an interview or a headline from today. Mm -hmm.
1: Syrians Um, must go back, Arabs must go home. Yeah, Yeah, Syrians not wanted. I mean, literally things you would have heard in 2016, 2017.
0: Yeah, you're rhyming history as you're rhyming your Mm raps.
1: Yeah, and I, Again, hats off to the forefathers of hip hop culture who did that from the beginning. So it's nothing new. Like, you know, I'm doing what Rakim did, what K one did, what Black Thought does, what, you know, so many people do. Using rap as a way to teach the next generation. Each one teach one. Uh, there's a cool acronym for PEACE. Please educate all children every day. And I think about that really often now because I see what like entertainment looks like in 2023, you know, how hard it was for us to access music back in the day versus how easy it is now, how you can program, literally program a child. And I mean that like in the best and worst sense with social media or with like this sort of technology, repeat things over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so when I go to shows now, or I do what I do, and there's a significantly younger audience in the crowd than there used to be. I see the disconnect because they're not necessarily used to taking in so much information that is like historical or it is, you know, sociopolitical or it is cultural because it's not about that anymore. And so I'm glad I can still do it. I'm glad I'm still doing it because I see there's a need for it much more than there even was before, necessarily. Absolutely. So that's one of the things I'm really proud of with the show. With And then when we did it in Chicago, we tried to tailor it for the Chicago community. There was a little Chicago segment about the city and the Chicago World's Fair. We're going to do it in Los Angeles in November at CAP UCLA, November 3rd and 4th. And there will be a Los Angeles, Southern California segment because the the Syrian migration of SoCal is very different than Mm -hmm. than New York. And a lot of people came up from Mexico, had already been speaking Spanish. Mm -hmm. Different, different circumstances. So those are all really cool ways to explore this history. And make a project exciting for me, it becomes a living project and it changes. So I don't get bored. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I do, but yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm really excited to see the future of the show and really see it being performed everywhere to bigger and bigger audiences. Inshallah. Thank it's you. a very important one. And just when I watched it, and also when you were talking about Ilya Abu Maldi, mm. it reminded me, you know, when I was studying in high school in Syria, and I was like an American transplant back to Aleppo, mm-hmm. um, and Arabic lessons actually were very, very difficult for me, especially poetry, because I wouldn't understand the vocabulary. Ah. And I remember like this, you would get to the point where you're studying in the history of Arabic poetry, and you'd get to Ilya Abu Maldi really at the end of, you know, the long history that starts like Mm the Jahiliyyah, Mm -hmm. like, you know, before Islam and coming all the way down. And this was considered very like easy poetry because mm-hmm. it's more modern. Mm-hmm. And they would call it Shar al-Mahjar, yeah. which means like the diaspora mm-hmm. poetry, the talking quotes. about the people who left mm-hmm. and what they talk about and their hanin, like their mm-hmm. longing for homeland. Mm-hmm. And I would always feel a connection with it in Syria as a teenager because wow. I'd be like, those are my roots, like the Americans. And I would love that poetry too, because it was lighter and easier in terms of the words that would be, used. you would definitely feel the modernity in the verses. Yeah.
1: yeah. Even though I think Elia, more than any of them, tried to be a traditional sort of yeah. poet. You know? He tried to stick to the traditional sort of uh, rhyming structures and meters, but even in that found ways to innovate. And of course, most importantly, he talked about stuff from today in a very frank way that somebody in the 20th century would talk about them, but just in this beautiful poetic Arabic language and lexicon. And I think like with him in particular, like Elia technically, yes, Lebanese, but his formative years in Alexandria, Egypt, and then came here. And I think that represents an era where that was normal and possible and and now there's these like weird barriers to that yeah. being normal and possible.
0: movement was so much easier, mm-hmm. even though it felt much harder, right? Even because though they all it came in these boats, harder. yeah, exactly. when you left home, you weren't going to come back
1: and the fact that he was in Alexandria, which is like a port yeah. city, so there was this like Mediterranean sort of mm-hmm. connection that was deeper before certain waters are blockaded, mm-hmm. and certain you know things got hairy. <laughs> It's always a weird word to use when you talk about Arabs. Not, not trying to make it, but um, (laughs) yeah. But no, I know what you mean. This poetry truly. As so, what I was going to say was when I started doing the research, and I dug back into these books of poetry, literally that were my mom's, and I found lines that she had put a little arrow next to, or like dog-eared a certain page, and then I'm thinking like, oh, what was she going through in life that she like wanted to highlight this particular thing? And I remember like where we first came like Tahiyyat al-Sham here, and she's got like you know, little, of course it's Tahiyat yeah. al-Sham, it's like him writing yeah. about Sham, and she's got the little arrows to point to lines that she really appreciated. There's one about Umniyat al-Muhajir, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it here, but it's like the immigrant's wish, you know, and he delivered it, he recited it to, uh I think it was a Syrian ambassador or a Syrian foreign minister when he came to visit America, and and he's talking about Syria and Lebanon in the same breath, mm-hmm. and we have this like really hard border between us now. That's like, it breaks my heart, you know, cause I read these words and I'm like, ah, oh, it wasn't always this way. And no. you know in fact, it makes so much more sense when it wasn't and it doesn't have to be weird. And that's not me claiming Syrian over Lebanese. It's just the idea that like it wasn't, it wasn't as complicated in, in some ways. No. It was complicated in others for sure, but here we go. Umniyat al-Muhajir. <laughs> أنا كالشمس إلى الشرق انتسابي لغة الفولاذي هادة لغتي لا يعيش الشدو في بحر استخابي لست أشكو إن شك غير النوى غربة الأجسام ليست باخترابي أنا في نيويورك بالجسم وبالروحي في الشرق على تلك الهضابي like that line right there is the essence of Little Syria. Just that, you know? I am in New York in body, but in spirit, in the east, on that hillside, like up on that. Oh man, wow. Anyway, I could wow, keep going, but I. Uh, that I,
0: is beautiful.
1: And I know his grandson Bob, who is mm-hmm. also spearheading the Washington Street Historical Society, an initiative to get people to know and learn more about Washington Street and about the history of, you know, Syrian Lebanese migration to that part of New York. And now they do walking tours, and they have mm-hmm. poetry in the park where they celebrate the poetry, and they're uh, commissioning the city or are in the process of getting uh, the city to approve a like sort of uh, artistic monument to the Mahjar poets. That's wonderful. Yeah, so shout out it's to beautiful. Bob Maddie.
0: <laughs> That's really really beautiful and a beautiful recitation of this poet. I can't believe you can read like that right away like you know so eloquently. <laughs> I definitely could not. I, I got something
1: practice, from going so. to that school. I got a, a whole lot of other <laughs> things, but I got I got that from it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, you know, we're going to start wrapping up. I have a couple more questions. Okay. You know, I was listening to your music this morning, just trying to get into the mood for this conversation. And I, you know how much we love your music. Thank you. I went back and listened to Hashtag Syria today, and I don't think I've listened to it probably at least seven, eight years. And it's not on Spotify. I had to Google it mm. to get it on YouTube. And it was really, it was hard to listen to but it was also very powerful Mm. and you know for everybody Um, Ahmad wrote this song right at the beginning of the revolution and used all of the chants and what moved me about it listening to it today is that at the time you know because all of us were in this space of everything was so urgent and it was so of the minute like we were on Twitter all day long Mm. you know a one day story would feel like it's so important that you would have to have like scream it from the rooftop the next day of what has happened and now when I I listened, you know, the chants themselves, I'd forgotten them. I even had to Google Kashush because I forgot his name. Wow! Um, Wow. And it was just for me thinking of, I mean, if I've forgotten so much, imagine other people who were more removed from this.
1: Or young people who don't even remember it.
0: Absolutely. Mm. And so this song just becomes, again, it just made me think of, Again, I don't think you were intending to record history, you know, mm-hmm. to be like in that kind of way, but this is a documentation of history, documenting the chance in a way that they can't be erased if they erase all of the protests and, you know, the erasure wow. of memory that we're seeing. And it's really, really powerful. I actually started thinking it could be another show down the line of just educating people of what happened in the last wow. you know decade or so. But I want to, I mean, it's not really a question, but it's just, do you think about that? that? That song, you know, how do you feel about it after all of these years? Yeah, no,
1: that's a really, that's a really important question. I haven't heard the song in a long time. It always gave me goosebumps. It always was hard for me to perform. And that, that was part of why I was easy to stop performing it. When the need for it felt like it wasn't as great all of a sudden as, you know, the need for other forms of expression, I started to shift and alter Of course, but I never wanted to erase it and I never wanted it to be forgotten per se. And so that's why it's still there, you know, on my YouTube page. And you can see the video and it's not going anywhere. The video
0: is Uh, amazing.
1: And yeah, and I, you know, it's all footage. It's just me rapping and then it's cut Mm -hmm. with footage that my dear friend put together for me. But that I remember like in those years, trying to like proclaim that I rejected the notion of being like a historical record keeper. No, you know, that's like what the people on the ground are doing. And I'm just here like echoing and amplifying, and like not anything more than that, because I was never trying to take that kind of limelight from the situation. I wanted to shed light on the situation and I was Mm -hmm. deeply connected to it. And in fact, that song alone (laughs) has a lot to do with why my family is not in Syria anymore and why I can't go back but when I started meeting and this is like relatively recently younger Syrians who came up in that time who were kids and remember that song and who left for various reasons were in Europe or in Canada or in uh, Khadij Egypt wherever and what they told me it felt like to be in school in Syria and hear that song ah I get emotional you know Because that's the kind of thing that I didn't really know was happening. And I couldn't because there were like seven, eight-year-old kids, you know, 10-year-old kids. And somebody across the world who sounded a lot like them was saying all the things that they thought could never be said, you know. So I I think about that a lot, you know. I think about how Even if I tried to reject it at the end of the day, like that's in some ways, it's still documenting, you know, what happened. And it's still, like you said, it's the voices. I'm so glad we did it that way. You know, when I had the idea to use the chanting from Hama, like it's not just from anywhere. It's from where my father was from and couldn't go back, you know, and where people never in their lives thought they'd see half a million protesters chanting, you know, let alone what they were saying. And then I remember we had to do a little bit of a cheat on the audio to get it to fit the, the tempo. Just a little bit. It had to be adjusted mm-hmm. because I, I had that beat was sent to me by Sammy Matar, uh, who at that point had already done the, the Egyptian, you know, revolution song, had produced that. He has a very orchestral sort of like quality to his music. It's very like the beat alone gave me the goosebumps because he knows what chord progressions and what classical sort of scales can create certain emotions in people. And I wrote those emotions and wrote what I wrote. But in the studio, as we're working on the song, I I just kept saying, like, you know, I like that I'm chanting this, but it just doesn't feel like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't do the same for me as as watching these videos. Yeah. It's like, can't we just take the audio from the videos? It's like, well, it's not the same tempo, but let's see what we can do, you know. And then when he finally like lined it up and we heard one loop of it with the beat, that's when the real goosebumps happened. I was just like, holy cow, you know? (laughs) So like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, and and then it felt right and then taking wonderful. the hashush verses and putting them at the end and then it felt right and then i was like okay this is how this can be done hopefully in a way that's beneficial and respectful and honors what really is happening
0: it's incredible yeah and it's really important
1: thank you thank you and i i wonder when i'll have the the urge or the desire or the the reason to perform it again in earnest, you know, because it has been probably a good 10 years almost, maybe a little yeah. less. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. But the other night here in Brooklyn, there were two young women who were Syrian who came to the show and were telling me they're like you you were the only one. They're like, we didn't have anybody else, and the fact that you're still here doing it, and now there's all these others who are doing it, like that's really we we owe you. It's so true. And I don't I don't take credit for that kind of stuff. Like I don't think it matters really to be the first necessarily as much as it is to be consistent and keep going. Mm -hmm. You know, because then you are the example. If you're the first but you stop, then yeah. It's the thing, it's the resilience, it's keeping going, it's like giving the next generation another goalpost to kind of look forward to surpass, you know, and that's life.
0: Creative consistency.
1: Mm, Absolutely. It's really important. And even if it changes from what you thought it would be in the beginning, that's fine, as long as you just keep going, keep doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I have another really fantastic Syrian artist I just wanted to highlight Mm -hmm. sitting on my desk here, there's Farah who lives in Paris and who does these really beautiful little
0: That's beautiful. Miniatures. Is that embroidery? No, it's just paint. It's paint? Yeah, yeah. It's, beautiful. it's
1: just like thick, sticky, tacky paint. And she paints these little chamois scenes that oh. I love so much. Another one is this book here. This author, Alaa Murtada, has she made one about Syrian homes and now this beautiful one about al al and yeah, just there's look, our history and our culture is, is in good hands.
0: What's the um, name of the artist, Farah?
1: Farah Alimi is technically her name, but she has Farah, J A K A, as her Instagram uh, handle.
0: I'm going to look her up.
1: And she works on like set design and France on like productions and stuff, but then does painting on the side.
0: So, my final mm-hmm. question to you before <laughs> we wrap up is. I know a big part of your identity is dad. Hmm. You know, you're a very proud father. And I wanted to ask you, you know, raising your children outside New York City, how do you tackle this concept of belonging and Syrianness with the next generation with your own children?
1: Wow. I'm working through that. It's challenging. You know, like we left Los Angeles where I was really rooted and I had a great sense of community. The school they were going to, was like perfect for us. And lots of friends who were, you know, whether they were artist friends or like Arab, Syrian, you know, Muslim friends, what have you, there was community. I had the village. We had to move for different reasons. And we've slowly been building our village here. And there's already, there were people here from before my wife's mom's from New York. I have my brother and cousins here and stuff, but growing the community. And so I think what I'm fortunate to have is the ability to plug into communities the way that I do because of what I do. So I very quickly started to get invited to events around New York City. And whether it was performing my show, you know, I had my children come and watch the little Syria show at BAM. They came with me to the Jibran exhibit opening where there were maybe half a dozen poets reciting his work. My son, whose name is Jibran, heard his name recited more that night than he'd ever heard it before. Saw all these drawings and these sketches around the room, was inspired. We got him a little sketchbook. He's been sketching and drawing and writing stories about Gibran, the artist, like nonstop. We listened to music. There's the Adam Umishmish, uh, like cartoon series. Yes. Such beautiful music that the kids love. So we listen to that often. And, you know, I mean, the idea of Syrianness, I think, like, is ever evolving for me. So I can't imagine what it must be to a child who's only half Syrian. And his mother is black and Jewish and he has all these other things that he's navigating. And so what I might have thought I wanted to do now in reality looks very different. It's very yeah. much his journey. And so what I'm trying my best to do is exactly what I'm doing. Honor the Syrian culture in the best way that I can and make it as cool and irresistible and delicious as <laughs> possible for my kids so that they are proud of the things that I'm proud of. Yeah, And, you know, it happens like... Um, I was, he was, because <laughs> I wear a tarbush in the show, you know. And I yeah. like, I caught him in the room the other day. Like, he has a little tarbush in his room. He had it on. He was like in the micro. He was in the mirror and he's like, yeah, hey, da, da da da. He's like I can like he was rapping. I was like, the fact that, we go. well, yeah, the fact that this kid can actually already have a model of what a Syrian rapper looked like in his house, he's already light years ahead of me. So, <laughs> so who knows what, Incredible. you know, what, what it's going to be. And inshallah khair. I mean, I, I think they're going to teach me more than I'll ultimately be able yeah. to teach them. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Maybe he'll become an architect who builds buildings. <laughs> you know,
1: maybe. Maybe he actually will build the buildings. It's so funny that you say that. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful.
1: I'll try my best not to be the bitter architect dad who tells him not to do it.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Even though he's definitely in there somewhere.
0: (laughs) That's beautiful. So I really appreciate all of your time. We'll go into these quick questions that I ask every guest before we close. And the first one is, if you could complete this sentence, home is where?
1: My wife and kids uh, rest their heads.
0: Beautiful. If you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be?
1: The Nizar Abani book of poetry signed by him and gifted to me in the late 90s, just before he passed away, in which he left a note wishing for my success in all my poetic pursuits.
0: Incredible. Mm -hmm. What's one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place?
1: I had a, a mentor in Southern California, Dr. Mahaut Mahira Simpe, who has a really important quote that I think fits many people in that position. Refugees are just immigrants more broadly. He said, "Home is not only where your grandparents were buried, home is where your grandchildren will be born and raised." And you know, there's a lot of different like sayings throughout history that echo this sentiment. Don't just you know get stuck in the past, look towards the future, but I think it's important for people to know that it's normal and like in many cases necessary for your sense of belonging to evolve in life. Don't worry about it, like replacing or superseding your love or sense of belonging to another place. It's if in fact, I think for many of us, it's just that distance actually can nourish the love and offer a perspective on it in an important way. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, home is where you're going.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is often what we talk about with the kids. Definitely. So you're from several places. Mm. If you could choose a place and give us three unexpected, I guess, cool Amar Afandam places that people must visit in what you would consider your hometown.
1: Okay. Well, what I'm going to do is give you three places and three different places because that's more realistic for my uh, sense of home. I'd say in Damascus, first of all, which I've actually never lived in per se, but have very strong sense of home and have obviously visited many, many times, spent a lot of time there it's in the neighborhood of which is where my mom grew up and it's just this home where this family has been serving shawarma i think only shawarma and kibbeh for generations it's one of those places where like they only make like you just sit down (laughs) and uh and i love that i've always been fascinated by those kinds of places like you know in japan you hear about the the mochi maker who's made mochi Mm -hmm. for like six generations in the same style like I always, always am fascinated, intrigued by that kind of, again, intergenerational sort of like pursuit. So Matam Siddhi is there. It's still there. Best shower I've ever had in my life, period. And then in L.A., it's not a restaurant per se. <laughs> it is the super king market, a supermarket in Glendale. It's technically actually in Northeast LA on San Fernando, which is where I lived for many, many, many years, right near the Armenian community, many of whom came from Halab and from Sham. But it is at the intersection of three communities. It's this Armenian Syrian community. It's this obviously like Latinx, you know, and Chicano community of Southern California. And it's this Huge Asian community as well, Chinese, Korean, et cetera. So the supermarket is like a beautiful third world supermarket and all the chaos that comes with it. You enter and there's shopping carts everywhere <laughs> and there's like mounds yeah. of rice and mounds of Persian cucumbers and an aisle of hot sauce. And I love it. And you can get Aleppo soap there, which is pretty cool. And then the last place I'll say here in NYC, there's so many places I would want to mention, but I think unexpected and really good for this podcast is a small restaurant in Brooklyn called Cycle S-Y-K-O. And it's a Syrian-Korean restaurant. And it's a Syrian man from Tartus and his Korean brother-in-law. And they have Syrian food, they have Korean food, and then they have a little middle section of the menu that's like fusion. Cycle S-Y-K-O. I want
0: to go there now. <laughs> I've never heard of that place. Uh, it's not a big place. It's
1: in Brooklyn, yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. Um, and they actually do all three, which is really smart. So there's some people who only want Arabic food, some people only want Korean food, and there's people who are, want to, are interested in both, and they have all of that. So.
0: I'm going to look them up. Mm. Thank you. So what dish tastes like home to you?
1: Ah, man. It's the simplest things that taste like. It's the bazalio it is you know, it's the shakriye. It's like the comfort, Syrian-like comfort food that, you know, maybe doesn't look like the most... Fantastic in the big spread, but it's like fills your belly and really makes you feel, yeah. you know, uh, good. It's the stuff that was waiting for you when you got home from school.
0: <laughs> I know that. And I know yeah. that smell very well. Mm-hmm. So my last question is, and you talked a lot about books today, books of poetry. Mm. Is there a specific book or books that you've recommended to your friends the most that you'd like to share with us?
1: Yes. So I actually talked about it in a recent song I put out a few months ago called Astrolab. It's a book by an Iranian architect, Iranian-American architect uh, by the name of Nadir Khalili. May he rest in peace. And it's called Racing Alone. You might know of him, Lina. He founded uh, Cal Earth Arts, this institute like a couple hours east of L.A., where they are essentially continuing his legacy of building these homes or these domes more specifically in this very unique way using earth. And I mean, you need to read the book. It's an incredible book. It's about this, you know, lifelong pursuit of his to create uh, earthquake proof architecture for this region. Of I've never Iran. heard of this. It's unbelievable. I can't even sum up how much this book means to me, like in just a short thing, but it's called Racing Alone because he was in the park w- playground with his son one day and he saw his son, if I'm paraphrasing this right, he'd see his son like just like kind of running around in circles. And he's like, what are you doing? You know, why aren't you playing with the other kids? He's like, well, you know, when we'd be playing, they'd be racing and I would always lose. And so I realized if I just race with myself, I'm always winning, you know. And uh, it sounds really like simple, but it's so profile. Like I don't want to cry when I hear it because I can easily imagine my son saying something like that. It just blows my mind and is so real. And that's a lot of how I feel in my life and in my career. Like, I don't compare myself to other people. I don't think there's anybody on earth who's ever going to be able to do what I do the way I do it. So I don't bother. Like, I just am inspired by different people. And I try to bring that out through what I do. And I never am not content with what I'm doing because I feel like it's always coming from this authentic place. And so I'm happy for that, you know, racing along. (laughs) Nada Khalili.
0: I'm definitely going to look that up. It sounds very powerful. It's very and beautiful. Yeah. Exactly what we're interested in right now, too. So I really, really enjoyed this conversation, Ahmad. Thank you Me so much for all it. of your time, for your art.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: For you're such an inspiring figure. Oh. And I can't wait to see all of the things that you'll create and that we will be able to witness. Inshallah.
1: Thank you so much, Lena. Thank you. Take care, everybody.
0: Now, I'm so happy to share with you a conversation that was so special, so inspiring. It's with a young Syrian refugee teen. Her name is Maram. She's 17 years old. She lives in Istanbul, and the story that she has is so powerful. She talks so eloquently about her journey from Aleppo to Turkey. She faced so many difficulties as a young girl, very young. Living through the trauma of war, experiencing bombings in her home, moving from home to home to places that were not actually made to ever be homes in these storefronts. And facing all of that with a determination, a courage, a resilience that I found so powerful. She has a beautiful voice. She's going to be sharing her love of music, her love of singing with us as well. She has big dreams. She's definitely one to watch, one of our young leaders. Please enjoy this conversation with Maram. Hello, Maram. Welcome to Belongings. I'm so excited to speak to you today. Maram is speaking with us today from Istanbul, Turkey, and she is one of the Karam House students. We're really excited today to talk to her about her experience at Karam House, her experience as a Syrian in Turkey, and all about her thoughts on belonging and home. So my first question to you, Maram, is how do you define Belonging. I think belonging has lots of meanings for me. I feel like when
3: I have a certain interest, it's like I belong to it. For example, I love singing a lot. So at home, I'm humming and singing 24-7. I might drive my mom crazy here and there with my singing, but I love it. I even recorded a song at Karam House in one of the studio rooms. And to me, it was an amazing experience, like really, really cool. Usually, I sing casually or record myself on a phone or something. But when I recorded at Karam House, it was awesome. And I still listen to that recording and share it with people I know. I tell them, that's me, that's my voice. It is a Turkish song by a Turkish singer. I practiced a few songs in the studio, but this one just felt right. So we recorded it. At the time, one of the mentors, Hiba, was around. She heard me practicing with the track on a laptop and recorded me from distant. Then she shared the recording with me to show me how good I was. We then thought, why not record this in the studio with Proverbs? equipment. So we did. And it turned out great. At the time, we had some sessions with Lee, a visitor mentor. So all in all, it
0: was a good experience. I'm so interested in your talent as a singer and this experience you had at singing a Turkish song at Karam House, which hopefully we can add here to the recording and, and share with people. Your voice and your talent. And I'm intrigued by this idea of talent as belonging. So I want to ask you, how long have you been singing? I have been singing for about two and a half years. Before
3: that, it was a casual thing. I would sing around my friends at school. But with all the good feedbacks I got, I'm taking it more seriously.
0: We have to listen to your voice. So our second question is a traditional belongings experiment, which is to draw the map of home. And you can take a few minutes to draw your map of home. It can be your home now or in the future or in the past. And you can think about this map in any way you want. And then we'll talk about your story of your map of home.
3: I have a dream home that I think about sometimes, just one of those things I daydream about. This home overlooks the ocean because I love the water. I feel so calm when I am by the water, feeling the breeze. The house is actually pretty simple from the outside. There are two windows on both sides of the door. Even on the inside, it's nothing fancy, but what's amazing about this dream home is that it's...
0: Waterfront. So Maram, your dream house is on the ocean. It has an ocean view and that's what you love. And is it situated in a specific place? A specific place?
3: Mm, well, I guess because I don't really have much stability where I am now. This home can exist anywhere. I can't tell where I will be in the future because I feel like I can get rid of my negative energy there.
0: So are you able to go and visit the water while you're living in Istanbul or is it too difficult? Uh, not that much, no.
3: There is not much time, and getting there is not that easy, with Istanbul traffic and all. There was one day during the holiday break that I was able to go, but to my luck, it rained the entire
0: time. <laughs> so, Maram, I know that you're from Aleppo. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from Syria to Turkey? To be
3: honest, it was a tough time. I was a young kid then, but I was aware of everything going on. I was living in a safe neighborhood with my family. Everything was fine until it wasn't. We had just moved to a brand new home that was ours I had really nice room that I shared with my two sisters. It was a really nice room made just for us. I had all my toys there and everything. When things got a bit tough, we had to leave the house. The plan was to leave for a few days or so, then come back. We went to stay with my grandparents. It was an... Elbow or Halab, right by the monuments. But shortly after, things there got pretty bad too. So my parents and sisters and I had to leave again. We went to the factory where my dad worked and stayed there. This when things started to get harder. It was a fabric factory and we were living in it among the scraps of fabric and dust and machinery. It wasn't at all a place you would want to live in. But we did for about six months. We ate, slept, helped my dad at work, all in the factory. After that, we left to live with my uncle. It was fine, but then the house started to get hit by bombs and shelling. One bomb hit so hard, it shattered the windows, and the glasses craved my entire body. There was another instance like this at school. I was in third grade, just sitting in class. UNICEF was visiting our school. That happened from time to time. They had brought us... filled with things like shampoo and hand sanitizers. I was so happy and I loved that pack bag. I would always get so happy when we would get gifts like this. Anyway, that day a bomb struck our school. The building was hit pretty bad. We got struck with glass shards again. And some people even died. At this point, we had to make the decision to leave the country. We couldn't stay anymore. It was really, really bad. So we left to Turkey. We had our passports and a plan to enter the country legally, with no problems. My sister was about 15 and my brother was around like 16. When they would see families at the border... They would ask how old the sons are. If they are old enough, they could take them and force them into the military. So we were forced to enter illegally to protect ourselves, and it wasn't easy. We walked through mud and water, we went on trucks, we concealed ourselves with our surroundings, we stumbled in deep ditches, and would need the help of villagers around to pull us out. And this is all while logging our belongings. But in the end, we made it. We made it to the bus that would take us to our final stop. By the way, I was eight years old through all of this. It wasn't easy, but here we are.
0: I just wanted to say, madam, when I'm listening to your story, it's so inspirational. It's so powerful when you're talking about all of the difficult circumstances that you faced as a very young girl living in a war zone, moving from house to house, leaving your beautiful house and your beautiful room and going to all of these different places and facing so much difficulty, difficulty in leaving the country and then getting to Turkey and living in these storefronts and living all together in one room and looking for your home that eventually became your home in the end that seems to have such good memories and a happy ending as well as listening to all of your struggles as a young Syrian refugee girl going through all of the struggles of moving through schools facing so much difficulty when you're in elementary school having to repeat some grades and then actually skipping grades and combining grades and getting to the point where you are at 17 already now doing your exams and about to graduate from high school, I can only say that I'm so inspired by your story and so moved by your story that is similar and yet different to so many millions of stories of series just like you that have had to leave the country and find home again and find their futures again. How did you find Kerim House and how was your experience at Kerim House? I was in school
3: and the Karam House team was coming for a visit. I didn't know anything about Karam House at the time, but our math teacher did because her daughter used to go there. The team showed us the different projects that the students made and told us about the different studios we can take. I really liked the idea and I wanted to participate so a few days later, bus came to school and took us to Karam House to visit. I fell in love with the space. We took a tour of every floor, and I didn't want to leave. I took the brochure, and I wanted to enroll. This was in the year 2020. At the time, my mom wouldn't allow me to go out alone, because I was only 13 or 14 years old. So she said I couldn't enroll. I told her it's a great place where I can bring my ideas to life, but she still said no. She said it's too far for me to go alone. Time passed, and I moved on but this was right during COVID. I would talk to my friends who were enrolled to Karam House, and they told me that studios were now online, and they would keep talking about how much fun they were having. So I tried once again to convince my mom, and I was so excited because she said yes. So my mom called Karam House, But to my luck, online studios were wrapping up and the students were going back to in person studios. But on that call, Noor from Karam House really made a case for my enrollment. She told her I would be safe and it's a good place for students to truly thrive. My mom ultimately said yes, so I enrolled.
0: So, we're going to be listening to the song that you recorded at Keram House and share with the audience a piece of it. Mm. But I was wondering if you would be able to sing right now something. <laughs>
2: معقول انسك معقول تنساني أنا على طول معقول انسك معقول تنساني أنا على طول معقول من هو دحمن نمرو مثل الاغراب ولا نبقى سوا ولا نبقى سوا يا مقال الهوى هلا ونعمر يحسبنا حساب نبعد يا هوى يا هوى يا هوى نسيون اشوه ضاع سر الكلام الوره يا ما كنا نقول عشقنا على طول لا لا مش معقول تقدر يا فراق
0: It's so wonderful to hear your voice and the song is beautiful. How do you see yourself in the future? What are your plans? What are your dreams for the future?
3: As Marak, I see myself being successful in the future. Someone who is standing on their own two feet independently not needing the support of anyone else. I want to become a dentist and I want to accomplish this on my own. And once I made it, once I have my own practice, I want to speak my story and help those around me, especially the generation that is to come, you know. I love to help those around me. And by then I will have gained even more experience and I hope to use all of that wisdom and knowledge to help others achieve their dreams.
0: What you're describing for your future is so inspiring. And it's exactly how we define a future leader at Keram And you have all of the values of a future leader. You want to be independent. You want to help others. You have a goal. And you're taking everything that you learned from your experience, whether that was from your journey, from your journey as a student, as well as what you've learned at Keram House, taking that all and practicing it to become your future successful person. And I really wish you all the best. And I hope to see you as a dentist and becoming a very successful dentist in the future, Madame. Now we're going to move into the rapid fire questions that I ask every guest. And the first question is, what dish tastes like home to you?
3: Molokhia, because I love it so much. And my mom makes it very, very
0: delicious. What advice would you give to another young person in the world, a 17-year-old girl like you, who had to leave home for whatever reason and is trying to find belonging in a new place? I want to share a message to everyone
3: my age, younger or older, never give up. No matter how hard life gets, don't give up. Chase your dreams, even if you are living through tough times. Let your goals be fuel for where you want to be. Focus on school and your future, even if you don't really like to study. Always keep your goals at the forefront. Don't let anyone dictate what path you walk. Choose your path And follow your dreams. Don't give up. You are stronger than you think.
0: That's so powerful. And that's advice that you can give to anybody in the world at any age. It's amazing. There is no success that it's
3: easy. Everything that it's worth, it's hard. If you achieve your goals too easily... You won't appreciate them as much. There is always
0: a price. That's so true. You're so wise. We talked a lot about books earlier in our conversation, but I just wanted to ask again if you had any book or books that you recommend often to your friends that you'd like to share with our audience.
3: There is a book that I recently bought, but I haven't had the chance to read it much. It's titled... Laws of jartan The book is really good, but I haven't finished it yet. But so far, it's great. If you love
0: to read, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for all of your time. It was so wonderful to speak with you. I'm so excited that you're going to be graduating from Keram House soon, and hopefully we'll see each other in person at the graduation. We want to continue to see you on your journey to success, to becoming a successful dentist, and we want to hear your voice and hear your singing more too. So I'm looking forward to hearing all of your news of your future that you're building with your own hands. Thank you so much, Madame.
3: Thank you so much for this I have been looking forward to our conversation It was great Thank you for everything
0: Thanks for listening to Belongings I'm your host Lina Sergi Attar I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Zub and Nurul Ghrawi. Episode research by Rania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleyman Faour. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you everyone. See you next
2: time. سميتني من بعد ما سميتني سميتني عليتني عجوان حق وقاسمة من بعد ما